first. Let's kick it off with barbershops and hair salons. Got a great panel for you. Thomas Hart is a barbershop owner in Penticton. Thomas, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Also on the line is Elizabeth Thompson. She works in a hair salon. She started an online petition to keep the salons closed. Elizabeth, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Thank you, guys. Thomas, let me go to you first. Tell me about your barbershop in Penticton and your, and your concerns about reopening here. Well, I've got a small barbershop. Uh, we, we employ four barbers in our shop. Um, we, you know, we, we run services like haircuts, uh, shaves, beard trims, uh, traditional barbering services. Um, our shop is based uh, mostly by appointment, but we do have some, some walk-in, uh, walk-in stuff as well. But uh, you know, approximately 2,500 clients coming in and out of our shop, um, you know, in a, in a given period. So, Okay, are you uh, anxious to get going back into business and open your doors again? We're pretty anxious to get going. I guess the message from, from barbers in the BC Barber Coalition, which I founded on Friday, uh, that has grown to almost 200 members, and I'm getting hundreds of emails from people across the province wow. concerned about the same things. It's too early. Um, mm. it, you know, we, we sort of got blindsided by the Premier's message to, to, that we would you know, be looking at mid, middle of May. The rest yeah. of the industry was told that we wouldn't be allowed to reopen until the order was finished on May 30th. Yeah, this um, so is was, this has been confusing for sure. I mean, we're in kind of in the middle of May now. Now we're told that after the long weekend coming up here this weekend, that maybe barbershops and salons would be allowed to reopen. But are are you planning to stay closed next week? I could tell you that eighty percent of the BC Barber Co- Coalition is looking into June. June, okay. For, for a number of reasons. One is we don't have a clear guideline on what PPE is required. We're being told right now that. You know, non-medical grade uh, masks are okay for us, but we're in close proximity with people for a half an hour at a time, maybe more, just for a simple haircut. Um, there's a lot of hair that ends up in our clothing and in our in our in our shoes and in our socks and our clothing, and so there's a lot of stuff that isn't really being considered at a granular level in what we actually do functions in our jobs. Okay, here's a listen. You mentioned John Horgan and his messages here. And I agree with you. This has been a bit confusing coming out of the government here. Here is, uh, here's John Horgan talking about reopening businesses. We'll support businesses as they take steps towards successful reopening. WorkSafe BC is developing industry-specific guidance to help employers bring workers and customers back safely. Okay, okay. WorkSafe BC is going to have a critical role here, but we're still waiting yeah. for some clear direction from them too. Let me go to Elizabeth. Elizabeth Thompson, you, you work in a hair salon. Tell me about that petition that you started online that kind of took off online for you. Um, yes. Yeah. So there were a lot of conversations happening um, online and hairstylists, uh, among hairstylists and barbers. And uh, then we heard about the different provinces and even states reopening and how hairstylists were more often than not included in the first phase of reopening. And that really freaked us out when it got to Alberta. Um, And we started, the conversation really started to kick off and somebody uh, on the forum suggested a petition. And so... That's how basically how it started. Right, and your petition calls for for what the salons to remain closed. Yeah, um, I think I you know I don't want to speak for people that that yeah. are raring to go, um, but I think the main message of it is a like Thomas said we're not we're not ready we're not prepared in any way we haven't yeah. even had clear guidelines or instructions from our government. Um. And also, we have a lot of questions. Like, why is it safe 
for personal service workers right now when Bonnie Henry is saying, make sure that you're practicing social distancing and she's really enforcing that when we obviously can't social distance. Why is it okay for us to be sent back to work first? Okay, how many how many uh, names have you collected on your petition? So so far, there are just over twelve thousand six hundred signatures. Wow. Okay, Thomas. Uh, let me go back to Thomas. Thomas, what what kind of answers do you want from the government here? What are you looking for? Well, I should I should mention that uh, the BC Barber Coalition had really we we started really going after it and getting trying to get answers from WorkSafe from you know really anybody. We released a press release the other day. Saying that you know enough's enough, we're not we're not okay with this this messaging, and WorkSafe actually came came directly to me. The person who's actually writing our industry specific guideline came directly to me yesterday and provided us with a, a, a guideline. Now the guideline is just that it's a guideline, and we have to remember as industry professionals, WorkSafe is sort of more or less giving us a thirty thousand foot level view of what a guideline should look like, but ultimately we need to be sitting down with our workers to create it. So the confusion that a lot of us had was we were, uh, as that mentioned, the quote of Horgan saying, you know, there will be industry specific guidelines for reopening right. for your industry. That, yeah. that is not industry specific. I've got a three page document from WorkSafe and, you know, I'm, I'm positive in the message from WorkSafe and I'm positive that they brought us to the table and, and are, are, are interested in what we have to say. Yeah. But I am a little bit concerned because it is a very, very high level. The messaging what? that I think it needs to be met, made is that it's really going to come down to the health regions in providing us what, with what those guidelines are because they're are, ultimately the ones right. that what are some? Of, what are some of the main guidelines there in the, in the document that you got? Um, it's, you know, back to, you know, uh, dividers between workspace. Um, yeah. You know, consider, consider appointment only. Consider not having certain services consider you know so if you're kind of getting where i'm going with this it's not really a guideline it's sort of here's some things that you need to be considering one on the 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 view of your clients two on the view of your customers and three in the general public but it's very high level okay elizabeth are you hearing from a lot of people who who want to see the your salon open again i mean there's a lot of people out there need a haircut or they need a cut, cut and color what are you hearing from your customers um, yeah, uh, we've definitely heard uh, from customers wanting their hair done, which is yeah. fair enough. Um, right. A lot of us are really desperate for any type of hair appointment. Um, <laughs> but luckily, uh, luckily, my clients, for the most part, seem to be respecting the fact that we just have no information to go off of and yeah. to open right now. The process for providing the information to every sector about what are the parameters that you need to have in place to be able to safely open. And this is not just me. So um, I'm not the one who can tell, um, you know, what makes things safe for everybody. We have public health inspectors, um, our environmental health officers who do this as well in the, in the public health side, and we have you um, in the industry side who know their industry best and are able to say within the parameters, here's a plan that we can come out with. Okay, just a little unclear, really. That's uh, Bonnie Henry, of course, the provincial health officer, talking about how these rules are going to work when we reopen these shuttered businesses. And 
Talking specifically about hair salons and barbershops, what are the rules here? We're still waiting for some clarity on that. My guests are Thomas Hart. He owns a barbershop in Penticton. Elizabeth Thompson, she works in a Vancouver hair salon. They both got concerns about reopening too early here. Let's go to your phone calls and see what people think about it. Deanna calling in from Kamloops. Hi, Deanna. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. Um, I was just listening in on the conversation today, and I'm also an owner of a barbershop in Kamloops. And we're, we're just been discussing on, like with my staff on how we can reopen and what we need in place. And yeah, we're, um, I'm just a little confused on whether we're supposed to make our own plans and then just go ahead and, and do what we think is right, uh, for safety and just start up on May 19th or if we're supposed to wait, um, Oh, I so I've you. been confused on that. No, I know, I know. It's confusing. Thomas, I, I think WorkSafe, is, has WorkSafe indicated that they're going to come out with some more specific uh, rules or guidelines this week? Yeah, that's that's correct. So the, yeah. the messaging from them is we've, we've provided them as far as the BC Barber Coalition. Again, it's a Facebook page I created on, on Facebook a couple days ago that's just blown up. But WorkSafe has given us those guidelines we provided a bit of feedback on what those guidelines, the rough draft was, and within the coming days, they're supposed to be releasing uh, their guideline. And again, it's a very high level. It's sort of also going to be directing us to our, our local health region for, for more clarity on specific items like PPE and that sort of thing. Yeah, do you have concerns about, okay, if there's requirements for personal protective equipment, whether it's face masks, visors, whatever, do you got concerns about where you're going to get this stuff? Where are you going to get the well, equipment? Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you that in meeting with my staff, because they're definitely a part of this, this decision for my shop at Slim's Brand Barber Lounge, is that we want to make sure that um, you know their input is in there. The problem with this is that the messaging is you know non-medical PPE is okay. None of my staff is going to return without medical-grade PPE because they feel they're in the wow. same proximity of a person same as a nurse or a doctor. You're in a, if they were in a room with a person and sat in a, had that person sit in a chair and then they ran their fingers through their hair for a half an hour, you tell me if a doctor <laughs> or nurse is going to sit there and be okay with not having medical-grade PPE. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Caroline in Vancouver, hi. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Go ahead. Good. I, yeah, I, my, my comment was that I love my clients very much and I'm raring to get back to work for sure. But on the other hand, in the past when I have said to clients, hey, I just want to let you know I have some sniffles so that you can make the decision about whether or not you'd like to come to your hair appointment. They always choose to come to their hair appointment, which leads me to, in a certain way, not 100% trust my clients to be completely honest with me about who's in their personal bubble, whether or not they're going to tell me if they have a physical symptom. And I would also like yeah. to know from the health authorities if there's any possibility of contracting COVID through the sebum that's produ- produced through the oil in the skin. Oh, man. Okay. Th- thank you, Caroline, for that, for that question. Elizabeth, um, do you share her concerns? I mean, are you hearing, are you hearing from a lot of your, co- your fellow stylists about these same worries and concerns? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, uh, Bonnie Henry said that uh, personal protective equipment is the least effective way to uh, slop, stop or slow the spread of the virus. And yeah. so, you know, when you're working in that close proximity with people and, you know, how our health officials are saying, we don't understand this virus yet, like even now. And we're going to be, the warmer months are coming up in B.C., 
hair salons are going to be running air conditioning and blow dryers. There are people that come in with all sorts of skin conditions um, like eczema, psoriasis on their scalps. Uh, you know, like, mm. how is this going to affect us? Yeah, right. Good we have point. no idea. Really good point. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Mike in Nanaimo. Hi, Mike. There's uh, hello there. Yeah, there's uh, travel at your own risk, and there's also uh, you know if you're an owner of a business, open your business at your discretion. I think um, this has gone too far the way it's gone, and I think people really uh, should have the ability to take their lives in their own hands. And if they choose to go and be in these places, uh, they should be able to. And the businesses, um, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. They'll find a way to uh, to practice due diligence and everything they possibly can and still continue in their business, even the hair business. I don't see why not for any reason that they just can't open. The ones that want to stay closed, stay closed, but you won't be bailed out anymore. The bailout is finished. Get your own insurance to cover yourselves for where you have shortfalls. That's all I have to say. All right, Mike, thank you for calling in. What do you think of that, Thomas? (laughs) You be a barber. (laughs) <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm so confused by those comments. Yeah, go ahead, just open your doors, and if you don't, that's just too bad. Well, let's face it, there's no vaccine. I, I guess I'm out of business then, is my response to that caller. You're not going to have... open up. Oh, no, not, not, not yeah. with that mentality. I mean, our, our, here's the other thing. Before, before we were ordered to close, my shop did close, and it was because we had a person, in the, the last day we were open, a person came in off a plane from Mexico, did you quarantine for 14 days? I'm not, I'm not following that. I'm not doing that. Oh. You know, so we decided to close on that. It was like the 14th of March, 15th of March. So, and it was specifically because of the, you know, the, the same thought process as the caller that, that, that just called in. I mean, okay. I, I agree. We yeah. can't continue with bailouts forever, but let's face right. it. We need some guidelines. We're not medical professionals. And there is a, there is a pandemic if you're watching the worldwide news. Okay. Okay, we guys got 30 seconds left. Elizabeth, what are you going to do if your salon reopens? Are you going to go back to work or, or not? Um, well, luckily, I have uh, quite a big say in whether uh, my salon opens or and whether I go back in, or when I go back to work. All right, welcome back. There you go, Brian Adams. Grew up in uh, North Van, right? Like, he was born in Kingston. I think he moved to England for a while with his family, and then... Moved to North Van, I think, when he was like 14. So definitely got roots in Vancouver. One of the great Canadian rockers. Man, I've seen him a couple of times in concert. He did a heck of a show. I saw him in Vancouver many, many years ago. Very, very memorable, high-energy uh, show. So I've always been a fan, but oh, man. Man, he's got the whole world talking here now, Brian Adams, with his post yesterday on Instagram about the coronavirus, which he has just apologized for. Now, this whole thing started... With his post on Instagram, he posted a video of himself singing an acoustic version of his song, Cuts Like a Knife. And then he had the text accompanying the video, which said he was angry that a lot of his concerts had been canceled, especially a residency at the Royal Albert Hall in London. He's very popular in the UK. And then he said, thanks to some bleeping expletive deleted there begins with an F. Thanks to some expletive-deleted, bat-eating, wet-market, animal-selling, virus-making, greedy bastards, the whole world is now on hold. Thanks a bleeping lot, 
And then he adds, go vegan. Of course, he's well-known vegan, Brian Adams. Oh, my. This got everybody, a lot of people upset. The president of the Chinese-Canadian National Council for Social Justice, Amy Go, said this was a racist post. She said everybody knew he was referring to Chinese people. That's what he was doing, and emboldening and justifying racist actions. Now, here's the latest update on this. This morning, Brian Adams has posted an apology on Instagram. He says, that he, quote him exactly, here's is no excuse. I just wanted to have a rant. He had a rant, all right. He said, I wanted to have a rant about horrible animal cruelty in these wet markets being the possible source of the virus and promote veganism. Okay. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Camille Labchuk. She is with Animal Justice. She's an animal rights lawyer. Camille, it's nice to have you on again. Good to be here, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this whole thing? Well, I'm glad he apologized because I think the racist undertones to that were completely inappropriate, and that's the last thing we need right now is to flame racial tensions. That's not going to help anybody during the time as we try to get through this pandemic. But I think that... Um, it's good that people are talking about the implications of using animals, eating animals and using them in other ways, and whether that be in China or whether that be here in North America. Uh, we know without a shadow of a doubt that using animals is what leads to pandemics and what leads to viruses when those viruses transfer from animals to humans. So I think it's good that at least that part of the conversation is getting out there because I don't feel like there's been enough discussion about those links. Okay, do you think it's racist at all to criticize these wet markets? I think it's racist to criticize wet markets without looking in our own backyards. I, it's very dismaying to me to see people blame uh, people in China or people in other countries for what's happening. Uh, it does appear that this virus originated in a wet market in China, but this could have just as easily happened in a factory farm in North America. Uh, and in fact, it regularly does. If you look at two of the biggest uh, recent killers in terms of influenza, swine flu, avian flu, these are viruses that come from our use of animals, largely in factory farms. So we crowd pigs, we crowd chickens into filthy, disgusting environments that rival wet markets in China. And this is what nobody's talking about. So if we want a pandemic-proof society in the future, we've got to do what Brian Adams suggests and go vegan or at least drastically move away from animal agriculture. But, uh, but I think one of the other things that's controversial about this post that he did was he talks about bat. this is the result of bat eating. And we don't know that, right? I mean, we don't know precisely for sure where this virus originated. We don't know if it came from... I mean, obviously the World Health Organization has, has, has zeroed in on that particular wet market in Wuhan. But... Did it come from people, human beings, eating bats? Did it come from some other bat source? Did it come from another animal? Was it due to eating these animals? Or maybe it was an animal that was in a lab? We don't know, right? Well, we don't have a crystal ball to know exactly how this occurred. But what we do know is that using animals and coming into contact with them increases the chances that viruses that they bear are going to jump that species barrier and come over to infect humans. So what most scientists believe to be the case is that the virus probably originated in bats and likely infected humans through some intermediary species, possibly a pangolin. Uh, we don't know for sure, but this is consistent with all the scientific evidence that indicates that these viruses 
And you look throughout history, you look at the uh, Spanish flu epidemic, that was that came from animals. You look at the Ebola crisis, you look at HIV AIDS. These are all viruses that started off in other species and came over to humans. And if we stop putting yeah. ourselves in close proximity with them, we're going to reduce the chance of that happening again. Okay. The other thing, though, that I think was particularly controversial about Brian Adams' original tweet was he went after what he called virus-making greedy bastards, which to me is a suggestion that the virus was man-made or was created by humans in a lab or something, which, again, is kind of a, a popular sort of conspiracy theory out there, but it's, there's no proof of that. So do you, do you think it was wrong for him to use those words, virus-making well, bastards? I don't really know what to make of that comment. It's no. not really clear to me what he meant. I think that uh, there's no evidence that this virus originated in the lab. There's no evidence yeah. of the conspiracy. I think that anyone who does believe that needs to do a little bit more research and stop watching too many uh, unscientific YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know very well what causes viruses and what causes pandemics, and that's our use of animals and enabling those viruses to jump from them to us. Right. Do you think that the criticism of these wet markets, by the way, what is a, a wet market? How do you define that? Well, it's a wet market is generally conceived of as a place where uh, people house a lot of animals, generally in pretty terrible conditions. They could be wild animals. They could be domesticated animals. Um, they're often alive. Sometimes they're dead. Sometimes they're slaughtered on site. Uh, wet markets, if you Google them and you look at the images, you typically see lots of blood. Uh, you see lots of feces. You see filthy conditions. They're, they're pretty appalling. Um, so, you know, I think it's right that people are concerned about the conditions that animals experience in these wet markets. And we know that they are very, very high risk for human to or animal to human transmission. But do you think it's racist in any way to criticize, criticize these markets? I mean, the, the head of the uh, one of the, the some of the major organizations in Canada, including the Chinese Canadian National Council, saying that you know this post looked like it was clearly directed at Chinese people, and that these these type of things just inflame racist attitudes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, on that? no, I, I I completely agree. It's it's really inappropriate yeah. to blame a culture or blame a, a type of um, community for viruses and for this pandemic, what I think is appropriate is to criticize practices that happen all over the world, uh, whether it's wet markets in China and especially factory farms in Western countries, um, because frankly, that causes far more suffering and far more animals are used in factory farms than they are in wet markets. But, you know, I don't think that we should ever be silent in the face of animal cruelty, but we also need to be careful not to cast it as a cultural issue or an issue about one country, because this is something that we all take part in. And we need to look at our own backyards here in North America, in addition to looking at practices around the world. Okay, speaking to Camille Labchuk from Animal Justice about Brian Adams, uh, his controversial tw- a tweet and his Instagram post yesterday, which he's now apologized for this morning. Uh, Brian Adams is a well-known vegan, a uh, guy who's been campaigning against animal cruelty. Camille, let's listen to a couple little clips here. This is, uh, here's Brian Adams uh, talking about animal cruelty. I'm not for killing any creature, um, whether it be seals, cows, dogs, anything. So, you know, any time it comes to any kind of animal cruelty, I'm uh, totally against it. I don't eat them, and uh, I don't wear them. Okay, that's Brian, that's Brian Adams. Here he is again here further talking about why he uh, went vegan. You know, I have a motto, which is if you love animals, don't eat them. A lot of animals live, in, uh, live very terrible lives on factory farms. 
At the moment, I, I uh, sort of began to understand what was going on with the treatment of animals. Uh, it led me more and more in the way of the path I am in now, which is I'm a complete vegan. Okay, that's Brian Adams uh, talking early in an earlier interview about how he went. He decided to go vegan. He's an animal rights activist, apologizing this morning for his post on Instagram yesterday. Let's talk about going vegan. Like, here, here's the thing. Like, I respect people who say they're vegetarian and, and they're vegan. Camille, I, I respect that. I got lots of friends who are vegetarian. I am not. I, you know, I had hamburgers with my family last night for dinner, and I just don't think that that's going to change very rapidly around the world anytime soon. So, I mean, is is it better to say everyone should just go vegan or is there or can we say that there there should be ways that we can improve uh, animal, you know, you know, improve the treatment of animals that we eat? Well, going vegan is great. And you know what is also great is reducing the amount of animal products that the person eats. It's not an all or nothing proposition, but every time you sit down for a meal, Mike and anyone listening, um, you've got a choice. To make and those choices can contribute to animal suffering or they can contribute to a new and better system based on eating plants that puts us at much less risk of pandemics it's better overall for human health and of course doesn't cause the horrible animal cruelty that we see in factory farms i think the issue with trying to improve the conditions on farms right now is that we just can't do that and maintain the same level of meat production that we do right now right um, but, the farming system yeah but uh, but i mean if you take a look at Let's say the uh, the system we have for uh, the meat industry in Canada. How does that compare to other countries? Like when you take a look at these wet markets and all the different sort of varieties of animals uh, that are in cages and sort of slaughtered on the spot for customers there. Isn't is that riskier for transmission of a virus than say, you know, a, a slaughterhouse in Canada? Well, I think they're both extremely risky. When, when we pack animals into barns, and, and let's just talk about the reality of animal farming for a minute in North America. Yeah, okay. um, chickens and pigs, they're overcrowded, they're packed into barns, they're, and these, these are not traditional family barns where you might see some hay. These are more like warehouses. They're dark, they're often windowless. Um, the animals are literally living in their own excrement. Um, their babies are taken away from them typically soon after they're born if, if, if they're mammals. And there are situations far unlike what we imagine family farms to be like in our heads. These are corporate mega farms that produce most of the meat that people eat. And when you look at that situation and you think about the fact that animal farming and animal welfare farms is not actually even regulated in Canada, I think that becomes a problem. There's not a single law that says, here's what you... Um, Here's the welfare standards you must meet if you're going to engage in animal farming. There's no laws about how much space those animals should get, whether they deserve veterinary treatment if they're injured, appropriate social groupings. They're just nothing. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about the controversy over Brian Adams. He has apologized this morning for his Instagram post yesterday on the coronavirus. My guest is Camille Labchuk. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. i got a ton of phone calls here. Denise in Vancouver. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm with Brian Adams. 100%. I only wish he did not issue an apology. Uh, what really upsets me is that the focus should be on the horrific conditions animals go, that, that, that they're put through in these wet markets and in our own backyard. And instead, everybody is crying out racism. I did not hear the word Chinese. I didn't hear the word China. 
I didn't hear anything about that. I heard wet markets, and they're all over the world. And what really bothers me too, Mike, is the complete disconnect of what people eat and what that food has to go through before it becomes your hamburger. Yesterday Mm. you were congratulating Marcy Moriarty on protecting animals um, with all her investigations with the SPCA and, you know, protecting them from cruelty. Yet every time you eat a burger, you are contributing to horrendous animal abuse and slaughter and cruelty when we don't need to eat meat. And it, the, the factory farming is destroying our planet. And there, there's a disconnect about that. So right. why are people crying about a racist comment that is not racist at all? It's actually factual. Wet yeah, markets are horrible, disgusting, profiteering, pandemic-causing, virus-releasing, disgusting, medieval places that should be banned worldwide all right denise thank you for a very passionate call i still think that eating meat is just going to be a a natural thing for a lot of people i like i said i respect people who are vegetarians or vegans but you know you're still going to have people eating meat i'm not going to stop eating meat and i think that it's quite possible to uh, treat animals humanely, uh, like Camille. Like when you talk about the slaughterhouses in, in in Canada, you were talking about the lack of regulations and stuff on how animals are treated. These are federally regulated and inspected facilities, right? Slaughterhouses, yes. Slaughterhouse yeah. and transport regulated and inspected, but not on farm conditions for animals. So their entire lives, yeah. from the second they're born until they get shipped, those aren't regulated. No one's watching. Okay, let's go to Laura in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Laura. Laura. I don't see the comments as being racist. I think Brian's comments, they were just an example of the frustration so many people feel about the lack of effective government oversight to keep the world safe from these pandemics. This virus spread through wet markets, which are filthy, just like it spread through our slaughterhouses. And our slaughterhouses are government-regulated, and yet the virus went crazy in them. So what does that tell you about what we are doing here in North America? And when you say there's government oversight, really, there are no humane slaughterhouses. There's nothing humane. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. We didn't get to all the calls. We could have done more time on this. But, Camille, I appreciate your time on the show today. Thank you for coming on. Always good to be here, Mike. All right, here we go with the cruise ship industry. Now, check this out. The cruise cruise line business is pretty much locked down all around the world, but some indications that cruise ships getting ready to start operating again. The Carnival Cruise Line has announced tentative plans to reopen some routes starting on August 1st. A lot of cruisers... Very happy by that news. A travel agency in New York says bookings increased 600% after Carnival Cruise Lines announced that they had plans to start operating again in August. How about the Port of Vancouver? Now, you take a look at the numbers on uh, cruise lines visiting Vancouver. This has been a huge business. I mean, last year... Vancouver set a record for cruise ships visiting 288 sailings 
a million passengers coming through Vancouver. That is huge. Think about the money on that. That is just a huge impact on the economy here for cruise lines. Of course, it's all shut down. But the Vancouver Port Authority now is saying that maybe they could start opening up to cruise ships again on July 1st. Wow, but wait a minute. The Canada-U.S. border is still shut down. How is that going to affect things? And think about this. Would you go on a cruise line again? Like, it's one thing to say the cruise ships will start operating again. I wonder if uh, the passengers will be willing to get on board. Let's check in now with Barry Penner. He is the former uh, attorney general here in B.C., now back in the private sector. He's a legal advisor to cruise lines, the Cruise Lines International Association. Barry, thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Mike. Uh, good to be on your new show. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk about the current status of uh, cruise lines around the world. Are like, are any cruise lines working, uh, operating anywhere in the world, or is the entire industry shut down? Essentially, it is uh, closed for business at the moment. There are still uh, crew, of course, looking after the ships. Uh, there, there does need to be ongoing maintenance, of course, on the ships. Uh, but uh, passengers have now disembarked, and at the moment, uh, the ships are not sailing uh, for commercial purposes. Right. What is the plan to reopen? And how many cruise lines have indicated that they want to start up again? Well, you reference off the top there what Carnival is talking about yeah. uh, proposing for August. That's a very tentative, uh, you know, it's a small amount of sailing that they're hoping to start in August, a limited number of sailings. Um, of course, that will be subject to whatever the prevailing guidance is at the time. Uh, the international cruise line industry is heavily regulated by a myriad of different organizations, everything from the International Maritime Organization to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, U.S. Coast Guard, and uh, a number of other uh, agencies. And so uh, many things have to come into alignment uh, in order for cruise operations to resume. And first and foremost, of course, is the health and safety and the well-being of passengers and crew. That is going to be the number one priority Right. And so that will be the criteria uh, by which everything is assessed. Okay, uh, Carnival Cruise Lines indicated some tentative plans to reopen. Norwegian Cruise Lines also indicating they want to get going again. But like you say, th- there's a lot of lockdown orders in place there that would have to be lifted first. How would um, the cruise line start operating in Vancouver again, if, if that's even possible? Could that potentially happen this year? And what would have to happen for that to occur? Well, it's, it's, of course, it's possible, but uh, it's still unknown for sure. Uh, as you referenced, there is a, uh, actually, it's Transport Canada issued a, a no-sale order, in effect, uh, for up until July 1, uh, and then they will be reassessing that. So it's not uh, guaranteed that uh, Transport Canada will uh, lift their restrictions. Uh, they've put a limit on the number of passengers uh, for what's called non-essential uh, marine travel at 12, uh, so or, or people on board at 12. So that's uh, a significant issue, obviously, uh, and that's until July 1, uh, but that will be getting reevaluated, I expect, uh, fairly soon as they reassess that as we get closer to July 1. I don't believe Transport Canada will wait until July 1. They will make that determination prior to so people can make plans. Uh, the cruise line industry is, of course, in contact with Canadian federal government agencies uh, as, as they are around the world. There, there are many different countries, of course, that ships sail to. And so there are many different facets and different regulatory bodies that are in constant contact with us. 
Right, Vancouver's Port Authority has said that uh, they'd be they'd be willing to reopen, uh, depending on the decisions, the federal decisions, as you mentioned, again, federally regulated port. Uh, with regard to the Port of Vancouver, obviously the cruise ship industry is a big impact down there. They, we've had a lot of sailings last year. We were on, the industry was on track for a record year in 2020 uh, before the virus hit. Do a lot of those sailings through Vancouver, are a lot of those heading up to Alaska, or do they also go to other ports to call too? The, the primary destination is Alaska, but yeah. uh, there are quite a number of cruises that will go elsewhere, everywhere from right across the Pacific to Japan and into Asia uh, to Hawaii and back sometimes. Some uh, some cruise lines actually have Vancouver-Hawaii return uh, cruises uh, in the spring and the fall, as well there's very popular coastal cruises from Vancouver down to California, sometimes to Baja, Mexico, and back. Uh, those are very popular uh, routes as well. But the, the mainstay is the Alaska cruise uh, destination. Right. Uh, and as you indicated, it's been a, a very strong sector of our tourism economy, uh, estimated at around $3.2 billion across Canada, uh, and in British Columbia, more than $2 billion worth, worth of gross domestic product. And just to break that down, that supports 15,000 direct and indirect jobs in British Columbia. So while we can quote these statistics, it really does come down to individuals. And uh, I know it's very disappointing for people who's, who've been making a, a livelihood supporting the cruise sector from onshore tours and sales and things like that. Yeah, uh, th- This is really devastating news that the industry has been suspended and that this cruise season has been so severely impacted here in British Columbia. Speaking to Barry Penner, Cruise Lines International Association, did it surprise you at all when you heard <clears throat> that Carnival Cruises made that announcement of tentative plans to start sailing again and their bookings immediately increased by up to 600%. Like a lot of people just love their cruising and don't seem to be too worried in some cases about getting sick or the threat of the virus. I mean, in your in your experience with this industry, do they got a lot of a, a very loyal customer base or would a lot of people be afraid to get on a cruise ship again? Yeah, there's a, going to be a variety of re- reactions, but uh, yes, the cruise industry is very popular with people who have been on a cruise ship. They see all the things that it has to offer. It's a great family vacation uh, and multi-generation uh, vacation because people can go off and do their different things at the port and then get back together for dinner or go see a show on the ship and so on. So uh, it really works well for multi-generations and for families and for others as well. Um, of course, uh, I should point out that part of that carnival announcement where they're hoping to start some cruises out of the United States in August, yeah. uh, at the same time, they announced that they would uh, forego cruising, it looks like, in Canada uh, until at least the end of August. So that that sounds like there will not be carnival cruises uh, out of Vancouver for this summer. Okay, interesting. What about keeping people safe when this industry does start to reopen again in the future? The new normal, as as it's been called and with the threat of this pandemic, how do you keep people safe on a cruise ship when everybody's packed in there? Well, there's a lot of uh, serious research going on into this very question at the moment. Of course, we're all learning about this virus and how it operates. Uh, and to some extent, hindsight can be very powerful going forward. A lot of learning is going to be done about what happened and how we can improve things in the future. Uh, for those that have been on a cruise ship, you know that the hand sanitizer is always out in different places around the ship. 
Uh, it's mandatory before you get into a dining area, for example, that everyone uh, apply some of the hand sanitizer and, and, and so forth. Uh, you're going to see extra measures taken uh, well above and beyond what's already been done, just based on the learnings as we uh, understand this virus better. 911.